how do we model this dialogue that we want the individual to learn how to have for themselves? You know, when if I, if I can kind of pause and go, oh, wow, okay, there's a lot of emotion in the room, we need to understand that. You know, I want someone to start to internalise and be able to do that on their own. Wow, I feel an intense amount of distress. Let me try and understand what's just happened, you know, so that we can try and start helping. We, we, we almost need to model for people how to respond, explore, rather than just continue to react. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Today's episode of Better Thinking Podcast, I am interviewing Dr. Erica Penny, and we talk about narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. She has a wealth of knowledge. You can absolutely love this. There's so many great insights particularly with regards to the different aspects of those, um, I suppose, personalities, character traits, ways of uh, being with the world, all these you know, pervasive patterns of, of, of relationships. Um, Erica's got a lot to say, so I know you're going to find this very valuable, particularly if you're a psychologist or if you know someone that you feel has these traits of uh, narcissism or, or sort of fractured relationships, emotional dysregulation, you're going to get a lot out of this. Welcome back to another episode of Better Thinking Podcast. Today I have Dr. Erica Penny coming onto the show to talk about personality disorders from a clinical psychologist perspective and and in some sense give us a little bit of insight as to how we can go out as as clinicians or even as loved ones I suppose um, you know work with manage support um, and care and love for pe- people who are going through particular characteristics and and, and, and types of um, you know ways in, in which they experience the world um, so uh, dr. Penny welcome to the show thank you thank you for having me so tell me a little bit about uh, how you got into this particular space. Obviously, you're a, you're, you're a clean psych, uh, but you have this specialty or, or special interest in um, personality sort of traits and, 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 and disorders, if you like. Tell us how you got into this particular work. Yes, I, I didn't um, know I was going to get into this area. And I remember um, when I was studying um, during my doctorate and I would go to classes around personality disorders and I thought oh this sounds pretty interesting and I was lucky enough to do a placement um, with a comprehensive DBT team in one of the New South Wales health teams um, here in in Sydney and it just opened my eyes to what kind of meaningful long-term work can be done um, and pretty much from there I have mainly worked with um, in settings with personality disorders and complex trauma. Just so I can set the scene, uh, because not all of our listeners are uh, psychologists or you know mental health you know professional workers. Uh, I think it's important to try and set the scene around you know personality disorders, um, even the question mark around disorders, because I think there's you know that that's a controversial point, you know in and of itself as to you know what constitutes a disorder. Is it a disorder? Is this just the personality? You know what what's the spectrum? What's the measure? Maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit about that because it's 
it's a hard space to, to, to get your head around. I think there's a, a little bit of a different schools of thought in the industry. Yes, and certainly one of the first things I will often tell all my clients is I hate this term personality disorder, as if there's something wrong with your personality. There's nothing wrong with your personality. But I think what you know, researchers or more, you know, the clinical task force behind the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual who kind of come up with these um, titles, you know, they're trying to talk about something that's really pervasive, that's been a challenge in your life, probably since early childhood, a pattern of quite pervasive interpersonal challenges and suffering. And so I think the term personality was meant to really um, capture this sense of it being a struggle from very early on, you know, as opposed to disorders people struggle with like depression or anxiety that could be episodic. You might have years where you don't have any symptoms and then you might have a really acute episode of depression and then you might recover and you know in a personality disorder we're talking about something much more pervasive that is there sometimes to lesser and greater degrees but is kind of there always in the background um, and so you know there has been a lot of a push around trying you know so a lot of um, groups have tried to move away from the term personality disorder a lot of people have tried to move towards uh, maybe complex trauma Bessel van der Kolk talks about developmental um, trauma disorder and he talks about moving towards a rational wording for a diagnosis for these kind of symptoms. Um, others have talked about a disorder of emotion dysregulation for borderline personality disorder. So it's quite a, it is quite a contentious field to use the term personality disorder. And I always do try and qualify with people that all that's trying to indicate is we're talking about someone who's suffered for a very long time and it's not episodic. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your personality, your interests, the things you like or don't like. Um, so it is a bit of a contentious term. Is it the word disorder that's that, that that's the contentious part rather than a personality? I think most of us are fairly comfortable to, to have a personality. Um, I think sometimes it's just a struggle as to kind of whether I like my personality or, or, or don't like my personality or if I can even say my viewpoint, the way I view the world, the way I experience the world, you know, I have a, uh, a particular way in which I am with the world, you know, notice the world, observe the world, experience the world and, and some of that's kind of given to me, so to speak, by, by birth. Some of it might be, you know, the the nurture um, uh, argument. So is, is it the disorder component that makes it a little bit harder or, or, or is that supposed to be trying to identify a, um, I don't know, uh, probably lack of a better word, a severity? Um, but once again, that even kind of questions, it measures is like the, the severity, one's right, one's wrong, yet a personality's just a personality, you know, we want to kind of keep it a bit neutral. What are your thoughts? Yes, I think there is something very loaded about the word disorder and it can evoke feelings like there's something wrong with you, like you're disordered. And I think what a lot of personality researchers and clinicians are trying to come to is actually a much more trauma-informed perspective than that, that personality disorders are about what's happened to you a lot of the time and not what's wrong with you. Um, and there often has been quite a pervasive sense of developmental 
possible um, trauma or disrupted attachment histories. So, yeah, I think there is something quite loaded about disorder that can be problematic and it can have an almost kind of blaming or um, kind of personalising tone to it that I think isn't helpful uh, in the, you know, discussion with clients and with remove and with trying to reduce the stigma in both the community and the clinical population around these kinds of difficulties. Before we go into, I suppose, what, what some of the traits are or how we might describe, you know, the narcissistic space or the you know the, the so-called borderline if we use the, the the language that we're all familiar with uh, yes. does it always have to be trauma informed is there is there any evidence that goes out and and, and looks at uh, you know those those experiences or those personalities being formed or being present just because rather than because of trauma or because of attachment styles of, of how, um, you know, key parental or, or guardian, um, you know, persons were around that person? Yes, I think that's a very good question. And I think that that has caused quite a lot of confusion in the clinical community as well, um, because there's schools of thought that, you know, most personality disorders should be thought of in this trauma-informed way. There are other schools of thought that say, um, you know, not everyone with a personality disorder has suffered trauma. And I've, I've often tried to grapple with this, actually, and I've put a lot of thought into what are these two schools of thought really trying to say? And I think part of it comes down to how we define the word trauma. So it's certainly um, not true that everyone with a personality disorder would have suffered some sort of trauma like sexual abuse or physical abuse or neglect. I mean, certainly that's it can be common, but it's not the case that that's a necessary um, kind of experience to go on to develop this disorder. On the other hand, I think part of what people are saying when they're being when they're saying trauma informed is actually a much broader view of trauma that sort of gained a bit more momentum in the last decade around disrupted attachment histories and developmental trauma that for a very young child something that could seem quite innocuous to an adult or something that's kind of an offhand comment could actually feel quite invalidating and um, be a real affront to a very young child's sense of identity if they already have quite a sensitive temperament so I think you know children who might already have a sensitive temperament I think are more prone to noticing attachment discrepancies, invalidation, um, picking up on the annoyance or impatience or frustration of their caregivers and maybe interpreting it as their own fault. Um, in doing so, maybe they act out in a certain way to try and get reassurance and perhaps a um, parent with slightly less emotional regulation skills themselves might respond in a further dismissive way or in an invalidating way. And it can create this kind of transactional relationship between parent and child that can result in a um, in an insecure attachment style. And so I would say that it would be common for children, for um, people with a personality disorder to have a non-secure attachment style. Um, and so I guess if you come from the school of thought that those sorts of attachment, social or developmental experiences are traumatic, then I think that's what people are referring to when they say, you know, that it's come from 
from a place of trauma. I think if we define it only in this kind of maybe harder categorical definition, that's certainly not true that that would be the only cause of um, personality disorders or complex trauma. Would it therefore be reasonable to say, and I'm, I'm certainly not taking away, you know, what we often see uh, mm. with regards to, you know, sexual abuse, you know, physical violence, neglect and the like, that um, those cases very much exist and, 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 and do change the way that people go out and, and uh, you know, experience the world, see the world and live in this world. Um, but I'm also hearing that there, there's a very real re- possibility that there's a personality there that could be quite sensitive to, uh, for example, being dismissed. And, mm. and, and so whether I like it or not, you know, I am going to be dismissive to my daughter's at some point, because you know, parenting is a long um, and arduous exercise. Um, maybe so. Even that word, exercise, could be quite uh, uh, could be perceived as being insensitive. Um, it, it, it's a long sort of um, responsibility that 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 you know I love and enjoy, but at the same time is very difficult. I'm hearing that I could quite easily become. Uh, 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 perceived as being dismissive towards my my, my, my children, um, not necessarily because I am, mm-hmm. uh, but there might be actually times. I mean, through through a eighteen year or through a twenty five year or through through a thirty year um, lifetime of parenting, there's going to be plenty of times I'm going to invalidate or be dismissive or not be available at the times that my daughters, you know, need me most, so to speak. Yes, and they def- could they could potentially my apologies they could potentially experience that as as being traumatic for them because that moment that they really needed me whether it be you know emotionally or um, you know for, for for security dad just wasn't there as an example. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is I think we need to be careful to be very embracing of imperfect parenting and good enough parenting. Um, I mean, certainly I don't think that any parent is or needs to be um, perfect or 100% attuned. But, yes, I think a very sensitive child, someone with a very sensitive temperament does probably need a different kind of, you know, sometimes I talk about with um, my patients around maybe it wasn't the right fit in a way between what your needs as a child were and what the capacities of your parents were. I mean, I think on average, you know, if, if on average a parent is relatively attuned and can sit with an emotion, yes, there'll definitely be times that we're invalidating or dismissive or, um, you know, that's just part of being human. But if on average there's a sense from the child that I could could go back and say, you know, hold on, I feel like you you didn't listen to me and I need your help. And on average, a parent would go, okay, hold on, what's going on? Let me understand. I think it's unlikely, you know, you're more likely to have a secure attachment style in that sense. Um, so I certainly don't think we have to be perfect. We, you know, all parents will be dismissive and invalidating at times. But where there is quite a pervasive sense of invalidation, where there's, um, and sometimes that can be from well-intentioned parents, you know, it might be that a very stoic parent has 
has learned to cope in their own life by saying, you know, put a smile on your face, chin up, socks up, you'll be okay, put your best foot forward, you know, smile on. Um, you know, that might have been helpful for that parent with a different temperament to get through life in that stoic way for a very sensitive child who's quite attuned to other people's emotions and their own internal um, experiences. That may not be a helpful way for them to regulate their emotions and they will experience that as quite a pervasive invalidation over time. So in some sense, the we're, we're, we're kind of establishing that it's not necessarily – uh, the responsibility or the, uh, if I can say, the, the, the fault of, mm. of, of a parent nor a person, you know, an individual person either, that there are complexities in this space where sometimes it most certainly is because of parents, you know, neglect and so mm. on and so forth. Um, but uh, there's plenty of other times when the intent was not certainly there by any means and, and it was still experienced as being traumatic for that person just want to clarify that because you know i know that uh you know how we're parented is 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 just such a big topic for all of us as human beings you know i i think you know i I can think of a particular time when my father said something and for whatever reason um and i you know i look back at it now it was it was actually a nothing comment Mm -hmm. yet it's burnt into my brain um and i i was just so upset about it um i was hurt I was just heavily, heavily hurt by it. I, I thought that he, um, you know, uh, had contempt for, for for me that I was a lesser person, and it was a comment about my hair at the time. Um, you know, he didn't agree with my hairstyle, um, but for for whatever reason, it was as though I wasn't good enough you know that uh i i didn't meet his, his his standard and you know looking back at it now um I, you know i was, he was probably being quite polite um mm-hmm. but uh you know it, as as a young person um you know a cut and 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 i i remember those words um you know like they were they were said yesterday Yes. Yeah. And, we can, and it, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, what can feel like an offhand comment to one person can be held so in mind for someone else. And I guess that is where it's, you know, is this something that um, happens routinely, repetitively, pervasively, or are they kind of key moments that can be outweighed by other experiences, you know, we've had with our parents or caregivers or whatnot? And, you know, and I should clarify too, I think often, there's a sense, I hear this sense from patients or sometimes even members of the community that, you know, maybe being too sensitive, you know, is something um, negative or, you know, and in fact, a very sensitive child doesn't always go on to have a personality disorder. I mean, often they can be some of the most creative people in our community. They can sometimes be the most attuned and empathic um, healers in our community. Um, And so, you know, I guess it is about that fit between parenting and child. Um, You know, can someone help a sensitive child, you know, regulate their emotions and feel a strong attachment and safe in their identity or is there that mismatch and then the child has, you know, too many of those experiences of misattunement um, and they start to lose a sense of who they are, who they should be, what they can do um, and, you know, that mistrust in relationships. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about 
uh, what these personalities are, you know. I mean, obviously, in, in discussing leading up to this podcast, you know, the, the, the terms of narcissistic personality or borderline personality, they're bloody horrible names, you know. Like, they, they, they already, you know, immediately kind of start saying something. And me, you know, coming from a relational frame theory sort of act perspective, mm-hmm. um, I can't think of anything worse. You know, that, that, those words immediately evoke, you know, a whole lot of negative meaning and the like. But uh, if, we, if we just use them just because it'll be easier to, 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 to discuss, maybe we might even redefine them as, as, as we go along. Um, can you describe... What, what what these personality traits or clusters, if we can call call, call them, I think it's it's important to looking at. They're a general, I suppose, identifiable, rough, categorized clusters of of traits that come together um, for you know parts of our population, and and mm. I, I imagine that a lot of us will probably relate to some of these features as well. Yes, and important, you know. For people listening, if you start to go, oh, that's a bit me, that's okay. You know, <laughs> we all have personalities. And in fact, we'll all find ourselves a little bit on some of these spectrums as well. Certainly, if you feel that you're struggling with some of these issues in a, in a way that's really causing distress and impacting your life, it's really important to work with, you know, a trauma-informed or specialised therapist. But yes, please don't be alarmed if you feel like, oh, I sometimes do that because we all do some of these things. It's okay. But there are it's quite funny because I remember going through, going through uni and going through different categories, and I, I, you know, like probably a lot of med students, I was ticking every box, you know, mm-hmm. and and particularly during our uh, uni, when, when you get to the alcohol section, you're like, did you ever drink more than you intended to? I'm like, okay, yes, tick. You know, have you said that you would kind of reduce or whatever it might be, and you didn't achieve that? Well, I'm a student, tick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All of a sudden, you find yourself with, um, you know, alcohol dependency or whatever it might be, and you know, uh, maybe some of it's valid, but maybe some of it's not not quite there in terms of the, you know, the clinical rating. So, uh, very much so, like personality, um, you know, uh, uh, characterizations or, or explanations or descriptions. There's going to be some of it. In all of us, so my apologies. Carry on. <laughs> yes, no, but a good point. Yeah, if you if you study medicine, psychology, you know, social work, you will think you have twelve different disorders, but <laughs> so it's <laughs> very common. Um, but you know, so there's ten um, main classifications of personality disorders, and they're raised into three main clusters. There's cluster A, um, which is a schizoid, schizotypal, paranoid personality, um, which is often um, kind of characterised by a very high degree of um, fearfulness and maybe a fear of intrusion, needing much more space, interpersonal space than than um, the average person or the other personality disorders. There can be a real fear of being engulfed. And that can be in quite stark contrast to, let's say, the cluster B personalities, where often there can be a fear of um, abandonment. There can be a, um, you know, a real need for closeness. There can be um, sometimes a difficulty with empathy, whether that's to, you know, an antisocial level where someone actually has a deficit in empathy, or whether that's because someone struggles so much to regulate their own emotions, they just don't have the um, mental space to sometimes be. Thinking 
thinking about what the person next to them is experiencing. Um, and there's the cluster C personality, which I think is probably the least cohesive of the clusters, um, where there's a real sense of um, anxiousness and fearfulness. Um, and that's where we find dependent personality disorder, avoidant personality disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. But two of them, the personality disorders that can be so common in clinical practice uh, often have um, particularly borderline personality disorder so much more research around their assessment and treatment efficacy would be around borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder um, and borderline pers and both have historically encountered a lot of stigma and a lot of this you know, um, I'm not surprised at the, you know, reaction you have of like, oh, terrible words, because for decades, they have been seen as taboo words, oh, you definitely wouldn't want that diagnosis, that might mean that you're untreatable or unstable or all these kind of big um, words that are not true, actually. Um, and there's very much a good evidence base for both these disorders, um, more research around um, borderline personality disorder, but certainly enough evidence to say that an, a good therapeutic impact can occur with narcissistic personality disorder as well. So in borderline personality disorder, um, someone has often grown up with a real history of um, invalidation, um, inconsistency, and so there's often a lot of mistrust around interpersonal relationships. Will this, this person stay? Will they go? They've often had a history of abandonment, and that may be kind of literal abandonment of caregivers leaving and um, maybe starting new families or um, leaving with grandparents. But it can also be other forms of loss, um, you know, maybe illness or death, or uh, there could be a grief process, and just just a sense that important people aren't going to be there consistently for me. Um, and so as someone grows um, into adolescence and um, adulthood, you know, they're often searching for relationships where they can feel safe and secure, but there's this constant fear that this won't last, this person will leave. Um, and so some of the strategies that someone will use to try and keep the person um, close to them to not lose that person can kind of paradoxically push that person away. So, um, you know, maybe the only strategies that someone has learned from their childhood is to just kind of hold on tight, you know, call a hundred times, ask for reassurance. Is it okay? Am I doing the right thing? You know, do you still love me? Um, and in fact, even though all these attempts are just to have a secure relationship, they can be perceived as too much for the other person. And so paradoxically, it might actually push the other person further away. And so it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to have a cycle of, um, you know, intense relationships and then relationship conflicts or relationship breakdowns to have, you know, multiple different friendship groups over time, have um, few people that would be long-term friends in a really deep, intimate um, kind of way. And so this can cause a lot of distress, um, individuals with borderline personality disorder will often have a real sense of identity loss that they are working so hard to be who will you know who the other person wants them to be to keep that person close that they can lose a whole sense of themselves um, particularly if they've had 
a trauma history. I mean, those trauma memories really affect the developing brain and it makes it quite difficult for some, they might even have fragmented trauma memories, which impacts their broader memory process and so their autobiographical recall is is fragmented. So it can be quite difficult for someone to have a really cohesive, consistent sense of self. So people will often turn to um, impulsive behaviours like spending or um, binge eating or self-harm or suicidal behaviours as just an attempt to cope with the amount of um, intense emotions that they feel that they cycle through every single day. Um, in, in, and we can talk more about that, but just kind of briefly, you know, in narcissistic personality disorder, um, we see something a little bit different in that often um, a child would have grown up with caregivers who were intolerant of vulnerability, showing emotions, um, intolerant of poor performance. Who um, they might have been, they might have often been given praise of when the person hadn't actually achieved yet, you know, but the parent was so perceived that this person has potential and my child is great that they give that praise um, too soon. They can often be quite inadequate limit setting. Um, And so with this, you know, pervasive emotional deprivation coupled with this kind of growing sense of entitlement, what often happens is it leaves someone quite lonely and filled with shame that there's this fraudulent part of them that they're hiding from everyone. They've got to put on this false front just to get their attachment needs and, and connection met. And so it's it's as if they need to search for status and possessions as a substitute, really, for meaningful connections that they missed out on through their development. And so it can be very challenging to work with someone who has a narcissistic personality disorder um, because, you know, they can come in with this big false front with this grandiosity, with this entitlement. And so it can be quite common, I think, even for mental health professionals to find that a real affront to, you know, their sense of self. They can feel devalued by the other person. And it can be very difficult for the person to really stay in it. And if we can somehow kind of keep bringing our mind back to where was this person when they were three or five or 10? What were they experiencing? And what do they do now that was actually adaptive and kept them safe when they were children. It's no longer functional strategy now, but this actually did work for them. This actually did protect them when they were younger to be grandiose, to be um, entitled or to be, you know, um, you know, reassurance seeking, you know, any of these things were was actually probably a functional strategy at age five or 10 with the types of caregivers they had. But now in adulthood, not so functional, it can push people away. And I think as therapists, we have a real duty to try to sit with that more than the average person, that we should be able to formulate what's really going on here and help someone to cultivate more meaningful relationships. It sounds like in both cases, there is a compensation going on around wanting to be cared for, loved, accepted, you know, adopted as part of the tribe, so to speak, whether it be from upholding uh, a special talent and, you know, being, you know, good at doing something or, you know, being a good person uh, or uh, in contrast, 
having been neglected or abandoned or this fear of not not belonging, wanting to belong, um, on that basis that uh, you know I need to somehow compensate to 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 be liked. There's a similar theme in this cluster um, that that that's presenting from different perspectives or different angles, but very much is still trying to meet the same human need which is to be socially connected to be loved to be part of a you know a a group a community a family yes i mean i think it's one of the core human needs that we have is for connection belonging emotional validation um and certainly you know the strategies of you know people in these two categories can look quite different but at the end of the day i think we all want to feel that we are connected and we belong and we have strong attachments now as 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 clinicians we often talk about you know it being a uh, uh a burnout type of experience where we kind of get overwhelmed with the, um, you know, with clients who present this way. Why is it so difficult? What, what, what are the features of, of therapy or maybe even as in, a, in a normal human context? What, what's it like to be friends with someone who, you know, is continuing to seek reassurance or, you know, that is questioning how much they're connected, whether there's abandonment going on or not. Why why is it so hard? Yes, I I think there's this, you know, let's say um, in what would be classified as borderline personality disorder or someone who's suffered very complex developmental traumas. Um, Yes, there's this interpersonal push-pull, you know, I – I need to kind of be close. I want that reassurance that you're going to stay with me. I don't want to lose you. And then I get a sense that maybe you're pulling away from me. So then I might flip into a different sort of coping mode and say, you know, actually, I don't want you anyway. I don't want to be friends with you. And I try and protect my, you know, almost reject the person before they can reject me. And so, you know, the I guess the person on the other side of that can be left with this real whirlwind of, I thought we had this really intense relationship. Now I can't even get the person on the phone. Then we kind of have this really intense relationship again. Now we seem to be in this conflict and it can take this real emotional toll. Um, And I think people, you know, if if it's hard to understand why someone might be doing that, you know, what they've suffered, what's happened to them, what's brought them to this point, then it's easy to go, oh, well, that person's just too difficult or that person likes drama or, you know, any of these kind of um, colloquial words we might hear in the community. And I think for clinicians, it's often that extra step further in that we're hearing, we're not just feeling that push-pull in the therapy room, but we also hear about the intense difficulties that people suffer in terms of sometimes some quite severe suicide um, ideation or attempts, um, ways of self-harming that can be quite vicariously traumatising for clinicians Um, sometimes impulsive behaviours that are so dangerous, you know, maybe something even just like routinely drink driving or something like that, that can cause such an anxiety for therapists. You know, how do I keep this person safe? How will I keep them alive? Um, And then to also have that push-pull dynamic on top of it, you know, some clinicians can feel um, 
this sense of, you know, well, why have I tried so hard? Now they're pushing me away or, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best for them, but now it's feeling too much, you know, now they want like three sessions a week with me or they're leaving all these messages. And, you know, how as clinicians do we keep bringing ourselves back to, well, how were these strategies functional for this person in a previous point in their life? Now, it may not, may not be, um, it may no longer be functional. So we do have to empathically confront clients to say, is this strategy working for you? But I don't think we can ever say to people, I just want you to self, self, uh, uh, stop self-harming or I just want you to stop drink driving. I mean, we have to figure out what the function behind those behaviours are, what relief the person gets from them, what needs they get met. And we have to teach people how to get those needs met because they're valid needs. It's just the way they're going about it isn't helpful. So we have to teach people how to get those needs met in a more effective, efficient, fulfilling, meaningful way because otherwise why would anyone get rid of the strategies that kind of half work for them? At least it's something. Can you describe for our listeners how this type of behaviour could be adaptive? You know, how, how does a young person uh, experience the world and how do they come to conclude that this is actually adaptive and useful for me? Um, because obviously without appreciating that, it's difficult to have that compassionate perspective to say, you know, now in adulthood, they're, they're, they're still mm-hmm. applying the same adaptive skills. Sure, it's not you know, it's now maladaptive, so to speak, if we can use that language, or unhelpful, not useful. Um, but how did it? How does it start out? How does how does a young person learn? You know f- that this push pull um, is the way to kind of connect, or you know that they can't rely on um, you know dependency from others. That that you know relationships will ultimately end. How does this come about? Yes, and. So it's interesting. I mean, I've um, studied psychodynamic therapies and and I find the attachment theories very helpful in understanding this. Um, And I've studied um, schema and DBT. But if you want to make it really simple and something that will go across all those those types of therapies is it's reinforcement and intermittent reinforcement as we know as psychologists, but um, it is the most um, kind of rewarding type of reinforcement. And so for non-psychologists, what we're talking about here is things where you don't know when you're going to get the reward, but it does happen sometimes, is so reinforcing to continue. So, I mean, it's why it's a slightly different example, but it's why people can get really hooked on gambling because there's this intermittent reinforcement. I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming at some point. Um, And so, you know, what often happens in inconsistent childhoods is intermittent reinforcement. So perhaps a child... um, cries and they say, you know, mum, I want, you know, I don't want you to go to work today. And she says, no, I've got to go to work. And she leaves. And the next day the child cries and says, mum, I don't want you to go to work today. And she goes, oh, okay, I can't bear it. I'll, I'll call in sick and I'll stay. And now we're starting to get that intermittent reinforcement. So someone might start to feel, so this child might start to learn, well, I just, you know, if I, if mum sees that I'm distressed enough, she'll stay with me. And I don't mean that in like a consciously, you know, I think sometimes people can hear that almost like as if a child trying to manipulate their mum. I don't 
think that that it's this conscious process at all. It's that the child isn't getting enough attachment need met in other appropriate ways. So, of course, they're going to do whatever they can to try and get closeness with their parents. So we could see escalating distress as a way to keep um, a, you know, a parent, a therapist, a friend um, interested and home and, and get more time. We might see things with self-harm like, you know, if someone's emotional experiences are so intense um, that they just have do not know what the skills are to try and regulate that, you know, and they've heard about other people self-harming. Sometimes we'll see adolescents begin to self-harm and they'll talk about this real physiological relief or numbness afterwards. And so if you have no other way of regulating your emotions, that's an adaptive choice in that moment. But to continue to do that in the long term is not adaptive because it's not actually a meaningful, fulfilling way to feel calmer and connected. It just gives you this kind of empty numbness that, you know, in, in the weighing up of choices, that feels better than intense dysregulation and distress. Um, and so, Or it may be that if a, a child self-harms and their parent finds out, um, they actually start getting the care and attachment and, and time that they needed. And so a child might learn, well, if I continue to self-harm, I get my needs met. And so I think this can be really my, um, widely misconstrued in adulthood. And we can hear words like, oh, this self-harm is just attention seeking or something like this, you know. But all these needs that a child or an adult are trying to get met are valid. I mean, connection seeking is very valid. Um, having, you know, quality time with someone you care about is very valid. And if these are the only strategies you've ever learned and had reinforced to get your needs met, of course, you're going to continue doing them. So, you know, again, I think it's harder for people in the community to be able to sometimes have this broader awareness and to, you know, help some of their friends who might be suffering in this way. But I think there's a real responsibility on mental health professionals to be able to take this broader perspective and to say, actually, all your needs, the underlying need here is very valid. And we just want to help you get reinforcement for more meaningful and effective ways to get that need met and help reduce these less effective ways of getting those needs met that are actually maintaining long-term problems and increasing a sense of shame and isolation and dysregulation. I like the use of uh, language around connection-seeking rather than attention-seeking. Uh, I think it goes out and kind of describes maybe part of that function of I want to fit in, I want to belong, uh, rather than, you know, I just want attention for attention's sake. You know, there, there, there's more functionality to that behaviour. Um, but something interesting that, you know, maybe our, 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 our listeners will, will um, get some, some benefit from clarification, a lot of what you've described in some sense are very much in line with developmental um, presentations of young persons, you know, where, you know, this might be quite a classic, uh, s let's call it a strategy um, for someone who's young, you know, wh whether it be, you know, a, an eight-year-old, whether it be a six-year-old, a three-year-old, 
even a 16 or 17-year-old, you know, we, at what point do we go out and, and kind of classify or, or, or try and recognise this sort of adaptive slash maladaptive point point of view? And I know that psychology has this, um, and I'm going to be a bit bit, bit harsh here, I'm mm-hmm. going to call it a stupid cutoff um, mm-hmm. because I don't think we should run a – a particular number as to when someone's you know psychologically developed enough to go out and, and and now we can go out and classify it but at the same time i can appreciate what we're doing um in trying to understand one's one's sort of uh, uh developmental um uh, aspects of a personality but a lot of these things are very similar to you know adolescence or childhood uh, at, at what point do we go in and kind of recognize this as being unhelpful and, and, and more of a pervasive personality that, 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 that that's going to be fairly consistent through a lifetime, so to speak? Yes, and it's, it's a good question and it's a tricky question and I think it's one that needs more research and more discussion. I mean, certainly we do want to be very careful that um, feeling intense emotions, feeling dysregulated, feeling um, not sure if you fit in, is just a very common experience in adolescence. And, and certainly if we were going to use only those kind of experiences, we could almost say that, you know, all adolescents, you know, almost all adolescents could fit into this category. And at the same time, individuals who go on to have borderline personality disorder, you can often see the full profile of these symptoms in quite a high severity by about the age of 15. And so, it's this difficult kind of dialectical stance in that how do we not over-pathologize normal developmental stages where adolescents are pushing for more independence, they are testing boundaries, they are looking to understand limits, um, they are impulsive, they do have less executive function decision-making um, powers. And so how do we not over-pathologize that appropriate developmental level but still capture actually the adolescents who are on this um, BPD, uh, you know, borderline personality or narcissistic personality or even dependent personality trajectory and actually intervene much earlier. People are very reluctant to give an adolescent a personality uh, diagnosis, which I think is valid. And I think sometimes being maybe misdiagnosed as having depression or anxiety means you don't get access to the right treatments. And it would be quite common for someone to only get a accurate personality diagnosis 10 years after they first start seeking help. <laughs> quite, um, you know, a, a it's it's very challenging. We don't want to over-pathologize and yet we do need that earlier intervention. So I guess what I, I think we're looking at here in – oh, yeah, sorry, you go. Well, I was just going to say, why is that? You know, are we, are we scared as an industry to go out and say, you know, excuse me, mum and dad, you mm. know, Billy or, you know, Sally is, is struggling and, you know, let's just look at it. They're doing very, very much – maladaptive coping mechanisms um, that are much much more severe than we'd like to kind of look at. And, you know, our data goes out and suggests we should do something a little bit more intense while they're young. Um, you know, I mean, that's a scary conversation as a GP, a clinician, a psychiatrist, you know, obviously psychologist. Is, is it that we're kind of a bit cautious to go out and, 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 and you know, 
push the alarm button? I think so. And I think historically, again, there's been so much stigma that, you know, with very good intentions, health professionals don't want to put those labels on it. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if you're working from a very strong formulation-based perspective where you just say, let's talk in colloquial terms about your difficulty, I think that's fine. But if it's actually causing, you know, a professional to shy away at all from that idea, it, it actually, I think, creates a lot of problems for people long term. I, I've had a lot of referrals for clients over the years that have come from other psychologists saying, I'm not really sure what to do with this person now. And a lot of the clients I see will come to me with diagnosis of um, bipolar disorder, treatment resistant depression. And after you know a number of sessions, a very comprehensive assessment, collaborative information, you know, we sit down to get together and we go, I don't think it is bipolar. I don't think it is treatment-resistant depression. I think it seems treatment-resistant because you've never had an evidence-based treatment for your actual disorder. Um, so, of course, a depression treatment hasn't helped you. It's kind of interesting and, and in some sense kind of crazy because when we think about going out and developing a skill set around, let's say, uh, acquisition of skills in sport – Mm. most of us would quite comfortably say, let's go out and do an intensive program, whether it be a, you know, school, school, um, you know, school holiday break camp slash, you know, intensive program where a child goes out and swings a tennis racket, you know, every day uh, mm. for, you know, three to five hours a day. And, you know, it gives mum and dad a nice break at the same time. But, you mm. know, it's going out and meaning that skill acquisition is going to be very high because of the yeah, the, the intensity of, of work um, and we all go out and think that's a wonderful thing and you know they've got plenty of you know coaches and other kids to go out and learn from and so on and so forth but the moment we put it in a clinical context it, it's almost like you know there has to be something wrong with you to benefit from you know early intervention training um, or if we just remove the word intervention we just say you know early exposure to intensive ways of learning how to use strategies to cope more or to regulate or to you know perspective take around abandonment or connection and um, you know what things mean because the DBT program and look my, my apologies because I'm probably speaking out of line but uh, my understanding is if you do the mathematics you're roughly at about 80 hours of, of, of uh, combined therapy in a six-month period being mm -hmm. a uh, once a week individual session and uh, twice a week of a skills based learning in a group um, mm -hmm. over a you know roughly a six month period there, there, there's 80 hours of practice uh, you know the, it's fairly intensive when it comes to as a matter of fact I can't think of anything more intensive other than rehab um, that goes out and and you know ask someone to to practice you know like mm -hmm. we would tennis you know three times a week. You might go out and practice, you know, I mean, I know when I was growing up, you'd practice twice a week and you'd play on Saturday. So uh, similarly, we might go out and do that for someone to learn you know, how to be in this world in a, you know, uh, a better way, so to speak. 
And many comprehensive DBT programs will not just have a um, skills group, individual therapy, but they'll offer phone coaching as well. So, in fact, that person may even have more, um, you know, 10-minute intervals of skills coaching even between those sessions. So it is a very intensive program um, and yet has a lot of effectiveness and and. Not, on, not only is effective, but saves money compared to intensive programs like inpatient um, groups-based programs or inpatient treatments, which does not have an evidence base for borderline personality disorder. Um, in, in fact, obviously, it's helpful for very short-term acute stays if someone's at very high risk. But the longer someone is in an in inpatient care, the worse they get, actually, with their borderline personality disorder symptoms. Um, so this community-based treatment is very important. But yes, in some models, um, it's the intensity of it that's very helpful. I mean, there are other models like schema therapy, mentalization-based therapy um, that have very good um, uh, evidence base as well, and they'd be a little bit less intense in their requirements, but still more intense than, you know, a depression treatment or an anxiety treatment. Often it's going to go for a much longer period of time, probably minimum one year. Um, and, you know, I think it is, and, and we also have adolescent program, you know, DBT programs. We do actually have those in some of the headspaces around, you know, if you're in New South Wales, some of the headspaces around New South Wales, some of the community health um, organisations. But it is quite, we have the treatments and we have the intensive treatments, but there are social, systemic and financial barriers to Australians accessing them, and particularly for that early intervention um, space. What would you say some of those social, systemic and financial sort of difficulties are? You know, I'm, I'm sure there'd be a lot of listeners who either, re, you know, relate to how, you know, we've described these the, the, this way of kind of living with the world and there'd be plenty of others who are also saying, you know, I have a loved one or a friend, uh, um, you know, how can I best su- su- support them? Um, obviously, we'll touch on the individual side, but what do you think are the barriers at the moment that, that you could kind of just uh, recall or think about? Yes, I think there's so many on different levels and I think that's part of the problem. I think the first problem is this diagnosis issue, you know, and so people aren't being um, diagnosed accurately enough early enough, you know, and whether it's actually about passing on the label of this diagnosis or, or again, at least just conceptually saying, I think you've got this, you know, pervasive disorder of emotion dysregulation or something like this. But I think part of that is a fear of going there. And part of it, I think, is educational. I think it's easy for clinicians who only do very short, maybe intake assessments to say, okay, sounds like you're depressed or it sounds like you're quite anxious about things. Let's just, you know, funnel you um, into this program or with this therapist. So I think particularly at, let's say, our general practitioner level, there are some amazing mental health practitioners out there that I've worked with um, who are so um, intuitive and supportive of people, you know, saying, I I think actually they have a more pervasive difficulty than depression. I'm going to send them to a specialist for a proper assessment. But then I think there are less informed GPs around mental health who might say, oh, you sound depressed, here's some antidepressants. And and that can lead someone on a trajectory to get a a treatment resistant depression diagnosis instead of an accurate diagnosis. So I think there's this initial problem of, of actually getting the right diagnosis to know how to start accessing the services appropriate for that. And then I think there's the problem of services 
in general. So we have some fabulous um, public health across Australia, some um, public health uh, programs. You know, a lot of them are DBT-based and they're amazing. But you often have to be in a quite high level of severity with your symptoms and at quite a high level of risk to actually access those symptoms. There can be 18-month wait lists to get into a DBT program in some of our New South Wales health um, organisations. So then people might look to the private sector and, yep, there are some great private hospitals or um, NGOs as well who offer really um, uh, in-depth and adherent um, DBT programs and you need to have a high level of private health insurance covered to be able to access those. So sometimes that can be a barrier for people, even just organisationally. Um, you know, we're talking about people who are a bit impulsive, who may not have the best kind of long-term forward thinking plans. So even just to kind of start getting into private health insurance to then start accessing these services. And even these services can have six-month, you know, minimum wait lists to get into the programs. So then we kind of start looking at... Um, individual therapists who might offer some of the evidence-based psychodynamic therapies, um, individual-based uh, DBT, schema therapy. Um, some people do CBT for personality disorders, but I think there are some limits to that. But then we've got the issue of, um, you know, Medicare not really funding um personality disorder treatment, if you do happen to get in because someone thinks you have depression initially, you're only going to get rebated for 10 sessions. Um, there are a couple of um, uh, public health network programs that are being developed in Sydney that offer group-based DBT um, for people who live in that local area. But then again, it comes down to the geographical area you live in, whether you can access this free service. Um, also, the PHN rarely um, will fund you to do the full 12-month skills training program, and so they, they might be an 18-week kind of adaptation or, or whatnot. So the services are out there, the skill sets are out there, the specialists are out there. But the financial cost of getting there, knowing who could actually, you know, help you, um, going through this 10-year sometimes process of therapist after therapist hearing, oh, maybe you have anxiety. Oh, I wonder why you haven't got better. Oh, maybe you should try medication, you know, can lead to um, this real sense of hopelessness and and exacerbates this stigma that personality disorders are untreatable. You know, people say, I've tried five psychologists and I'm not better. And that would not be uncommon for clients I've seen to say things like that. And I hope that, you know, if anyone is listening and thinking, oh, maybe I do have some more pervasive interpersonal difficulties here, you know, don't stop trying because actually there are some very evidence-based treatments out there. You know, search for therapists who specialise in complex trauma, who um, are trauma-informed or specialise in personality disorders. Look for these specialised programs because they're vastly different from a treatment-as-usual um, approach for depression or anxiety. Why does DBT keep coming up? You know, dialectical behavioural the uh, therapy, you know, you You've mentioned it. I've mentioned it. Is, is, is this what you know? The best practice, you know, is you know, is, is there evidence for something else for these you know pervasive sort of you know interpersonal difficulties? Why why do we keep coming back to DBT? Yes. 
Well, and look, I'm, uh, as a full disclaimer, I would say that I would consider myself more of a schema therapist, though I have done a lot of work with DBT programs as well. And and personally, I don't know, there's good research on this, but I know myself and a number of colleagues have certain qualities we look for of whether we would choose a DBT um, approach or a schema approach for a particular individual. I mean, DBT has some of the biggest evidence base and some of that I think actually comes down to funding organization and motivation not just that it's an evidence-based treatment so Marsha Linehan has done an amazing job with the Linehan Institute she's brought in um, you know huge grants to to have large-scale random control trials I think there's about 12 um, large-scale RCTs that have studied the um, DBT compared to CBT or treatment as usual um, and, and have shown effects above and beyond those other kind of treatments um, and they also persist in the longer term. There have been about eight, I think, RCTs on um, psychodynamic therapies like mentalization-based therapy, which is quite a, 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 a has a growing momentum um, for uh, therapists to train in mentalization-based therapies. Um, and I think schema therapy just doesn't have the, the number of RCTs to kind of get the same credibility as some of the others. And yet it was designed as a treatment for personality disorders. And I think what it comes down to, and, and if I find even, so there are, there is evidence that they are quite helpful for narcissistic, that schema therapy is quite helpful in narcissistic personality disorder, dependent, avoidant, um, borderline personality disorders. And for me, when I'm kind of thinking, you know, does this person need DBT? Do they need um, schema therapy? It's often around the um, level of um, problematic behaviours that someone has. So if someone has um, is very dysregulated, is really struggling to hold down a job, any kind of relationship, has housing crises, I'll often go down a DBT approach, at least initially. Um, it, it's often people find it quite containing. They start developing skills very, very quickly. They're in this supportive group with um, like-minded people who've shared similar struggles. You know, the group members tell me things like, um, oh, I thought I was just crazy, but now I see that, you know, I'm just like lots of people and we all struggle and we just missed out on learning these skills. And so I will often kind of go down a skills-based approach. But my kind of reading of the research and, and you know, who's to, to say at this point, but the mechanism of change in DBT versus schema is quite different. So the philosophy of DBT is that um, because of this very invalidating, inconsistent, maybe developmentally traumatic childhood, there was not modelling of skills of how to regulate your emotions. You didn't see your parents or caregivers doing it. They didn't actively coach you to regulate emotions. And so you, there's a skills deficit that needs to be um, moderated. In schema therapy, the philosophy behind emotion regulation is quite different. And it, it says it's not that it's a skills defi deficit, it's that a secure attachment in and of itself is what regulates emotions. If I don't have 
trauma memories flooding my my brain, if I don't have a fragmented sense of self, if I have someone that I trust will always be there, my emotions will be more regulated. And so in schema therapy, the approach would be to um, actually increase someone's um, ability to move towards a secure attachment style, to better integrate the different parts of themselves, to heal some of their attachment wounds from childhood. And so often emotion regulation is an actively explicitly targeted and yet you see it as a byproduct um, of the treatment but having said that I I think sometimes you know if if a client um, is really struggling with high uses of substances alcohol impulsive spending they're going into debt then I think a skills-based approach is going to be a a quicker way to help them get into a more stabilized um, position for other clients who have a bit more stability in their life but just not internally or interpersonally, I think a schema approach can be very meaningful. I think DBT just has been much wider disseminated. It's had this amazing cheerleader in Marsha Linehan, you know, to um, kind of cheer it on, do this research. And it's also, I think, the appeal of DBT over these, you know, mentalization-based therapy or schema therapy is that it's a team approach. You get together with your consult team every single week. You work in pairs in the group. You have, you know, three or four people involved in one person's care. There's the case manager. There's the therapist. There's the psychiatrist. There's the group facilitator. And so when you struggle, you don't feel it as much because you go to your consult and you go, oh, okay, hold on. Let's just bring it back. Why are they doing that? Where do they need to go? What are their goals? How can I facilitate them making the choices of what their treatment looks like? And I think some of the other approaches where you're more on your own in a clinic room, you know, you really have to seek out your independent supervision. It can feel quite isolating. And I think it can just feel that the setup and the framework can just feel trickier um, for the therapist. So I think that's part of why DBT has got such traction and it is effective. There's no doubt that Marsha Linehan has done a, an incredible job and, 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 and certainly demonstrated a great evidence base that I suppose in some sense there's a question mark around if if other um, approaches were given that that type of opportunity to, to, to spend that time, whether it be from a schema perspective, you know, if we talk about it from a reinforcement schedule that we kind of started at, uh, earlier, uh, if we were to be able to reinforce you know, uh, secure attachment, you know, three times a week plus phone calls uh, Mm -hmm. and develop that, you know, space of I'm going to walk with you, I'm going to hold your hand and I'll be here for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. Someone can develop some of those skills, you know, we might call that reparenting, so so to speak, you know, loosely. Uh, But similarly, you know, being an ACT person, you know, myself, you know, there, there, there's so many similarities between, you know, whether it be, you know, the, the DBT approach, you know, and, you know, let, let's just say radical acceptance, you know, as being one, one, one small concept and acceptance and slash diffusion in, in, in the, um, you know, ACT world. If we were given that opportunity to do some RCTs with, you know, three touch points a week and phone calls i'd i'd be i'd be surprised if there wasn't some pretty damn you know good 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 results i think the difference is act at the moment or schema at the moment is not going out and saying we have a program 
Uh, and this is what the program looks like and we want someone to, to, to commit. Um, and I'm assuming as well when someone does commit, at some level there's, there's, there's a fair bit of commitment because, you know, the, the, the costs involved are going to be quite substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so someone's motivation may be higher and, you know, that, that's mm-hmm. kind of maybe stretching a bow a little bit because often people have loved ones uh, that might support. But even there – the fact that there's a loved one shows some sort of secure attachment. Again, that there's a possibility there that that that, that there is some you know secure attachment there. So, um, you know, maybe there's maybe there's some question marks. Not not necessarily about DBT. I think there's some you know big big uh, ticks, but question marks as to other uh, other approaches might be able to offer um, something similar. Yeah, and I, I think any therapy that helps a therapist model a secure attachment is going to, you know, that's going to be half the the efficacy, I think. You know, a, a way to be able to stay in it to say I'm here and you're not pushing me away. At the same time, I'm not going to tolerate insults, but I'm happy for you to be angry with me. I'm going I'm to teach you actually how to be skillful when you express that you're angry with me so that you can help me stay in this with you and we can work on this together. And I think any therapy that can model that sort of, um, you know, uh, empathic confrontation and that secure attachment of being there with limits, uh, with appropriate limits, but also this unconditional positive regard, you know, I think is going to be half the battle when it's, you know, particularly in borderline personality disorder when it's so much around that interpersonal abandonment and feeling unsafe and attachment. I'm jumping the gun maybe, but is that is that part of what therapy uh, kind of looks like? Uh, I suppose at least when, you know, a relationship is challenged, you know, and I'm not sure if that's the right word because I'm not saying it in, a, in an intentional way. I don't believe clients are intentionally challenging it, but, uh, you know, they might inadvertently be be questioned or there might be some, you know, um, clumsy language from from a client kind of saying, you know, you don't really, you don't really, you know, care for me, do you? Yes. And, and that will be quite common, um, you know, with a client who's had a lot of complex trauma and abandonment, you know, there might be times in therapy when there's a real sense of, oh, my goodness, you're the only person I have in the world, you're my lifeline, and then, you know, I always say to clients, um, you know, I, I will disappoint you at some point because I am human and I will make mistakes and I will turn up late. I mean, I definitely try not to, but there will be a time when something will happen and it will be unavoidable and I will have let you down. And it's at those times that I really need you to be strong and to tell me that you're upset with me because you're not going to get in trouble for being angry with me. In fact, I want you to be angry with me. I actually want you to start to have these relationships with a gray area you know where you're allowed to have disagreements you're allowed to have ruptures and then you have repairs and then you know we can have this rupture and repair um, relationship that you know um, the average person might be able to have more intuitively this is what I want us to start to have together because there will come a time you know I think it would be a um, it's a novice therapist mistake that we've all made at times you know to to work with your first client who might idealize you for a few sessions and you think wow such a good job this is fantastic and then a few sessions in you know you're a few minutes late or something's happened and for the other person it's it's not a few minutes late it's 
I thought maybe you weren't coming. I thought maybe you'd forgotten about me because that was a very real concern when that person was a child. And so they may then be very angry with you in the session. And it can be easy for someone to go, well, what are you talking about? I was just five minutes late. Why are you making such a big deal? But if you hear that language, this is probably modeling the invalidation they might have heard when they were younger. Oh, you're so sensitive. Are you making too big a deal out of this? Instead of saying, okay, let's just stop, understand what's going on here. You know, what is it that's going through your mind? What did you think might happen if I didn't turn up? You know, let's understand this without getting too caught in, you know, blaming or personalising. It's almost like when when we're attacked, whether as, a, as clinicians or as human beings, we, we tend to kind of become defensive and explain things which invalidates the other person mm-hmm. rather than taking a more curious position and, and, and kind of saying, you know, okay, can you talk me through that? Why did that feel that way? You know, how did you come up, you know, with that with that understanding and, and potentially apologize, you know, for I'm sorry it made that way it made made you feel that way. It wasn't my intent, you know. Um, and explain that there are other things that may come up and you know, naturally we will go out and disappoint them probably many a time rather than just this single time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and how to kind of model a imperfection around that, you know, and, and, and model a comfortability that, you know, um, I'm not going to have all the answers. I'm, I'm not going to always get it right. I'm not always going to be perfect. And if I'm okay with that, might you one day be okay with not having to get it just right and and get things perfect or be one way all the time or one way not the other time? You know, I think there's a lot said in interpersonal relationships um, in therapy, but also, you know, I've I've seen um, just personally, not in my clinical work, but I've seen, um, you know, people that probably are a little bit on, you know, a, a borderline personality spectrum actually have no therapy, but improve in their um, mood, in their stability, in their impulsiveness, in their um, identity, because they've met a partner who is very consistent, who models this same kind of, oh, wait, hold on, what's happened? Uh, Did I do something wrong? Are you upset with me? Rather than this kind of reactive of, you always do this too, and, you know, and so I think a lot of, you know, what we need to be thinking of as therapists is, you know, how do we model this dialogue that we want the individual to learn how to have for themselves? You know, when if I, if I can kind of pause and go, oh, wow, okay, there's a lot of emotion in the room, we need to understand that. You know, I want someone to start to internalise and be able to do that on their own. Wow, I feel an intense amount of distress. Let me try and understand what's just happened you know, so that we can try and start helping. We, we, we almost need to model for people how to respond, explore, rather than just continue to react. Is that why it's so difficult for loved ones that, uh, that you know, we're not necessarily coming from a curious place? You know, a therapist might very much be doing so, um, but even we kind of trip over ourselves um, in, you know, trying to... Uh, take therapy in a direction rather than be curious with where it's going at, at times and to model, you know, what, what, what it might look like as, as being, you know, stable, curious, inquisitive, you know, and, and understanding and at the same time placing some boundaries about saying, you know, what, what's kind of okay and, you know, maybe what 
is not necessarily okay. I think it's incredibly difficult for carers, family members, friends, um, because they, you're not going to have the mental health training to be able to stop and go, where is this coming from? You know, I don't think it's really about me being five minutes late. I think it's about something else. What's the bigger thing here? You know, there's not that training to be able to consider that. And so, of course, people are going to react back or be defensive um, and, you know, it kind of exacerbates this cycle. And I think something that as a mental health profession, we have historically not done that well. And, and even in DBT, although this is starting to change with some of the DBT programs, is we've not enough included families and carers in treatment programs. And I think particularly in that early intervention level, but even in adulthood, it is so important to get husbands, wives, parents, um, carers involved in these kind of discussions. And only recently are there starting to emerge these complementary programs to DBT programs that are these shorter adapted modules where people, um, you know, family members who are keen to try and support their loved one but also look after themselves and, and not feel that burnout can go to these groups, meet, again, similar people who are struggling with similar issues, not only learn the skills that they're, um, you know, children, partners are learning and, you know, how to help kind of coach them through those skills, but actually learning how to use those skills for themselves and to say, I need to just stop. I need to take a breath. I need to observe what's going on. I can't need to use a distress tolerance skill. I'm outside my window of tolerance. I need to go away. Let's talk about this later. Or I need to learn how to effectively communicate my needs better or set limits, but in a compassionate way. And I think it's historically something we've not addressed well enough when we're talking about a pervasive um, difficulty. You know, we're not talking about an episodic depression where someone has been fine, now there's a difficulty. You know, if it's that pervasive, it's impacting every relationship that that person has, or at least every close relationship that that person has. So I certainly think that's something we need to continue to roll out more, have more research in, and, you know, for families, um, listening, you know, to try and Google, you know, DBT carers support families, um, support groups that might be in your area or ask your GP if they know of any um, because they are starting to emerge and they can be very helpful. Is that where you think, you know, having done, you know, the, the amazing, amazing amount of, you know, research and the clinical experience that you have is, is uh, somewhat the the battleground, I'm not sure that's the right language, or the frontier of, of, of supporting with uh, curiosity, understanding, making space and room, modelling, you know, reinforcing that secure attachment. Uh, I, I think it's an important, important uh, aspect. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and some boundary setting, uh, mm. uh, uh, you know, similarly. Um, is that kind of capturing at least the the primary areas that um you know loved ones can 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 have if i move away from from clinicians you know to to try and be supportive caring Mm -hmm. uh you know curious uh stable if you will um Mm -hmm. kind of saying i am here uh with you and you know there are some things that i you know kind of need from you as well yeah, I think that's a big part of it is 
Yes, and, and remember, you know, yes, consistency, attachment, so important. And remember that one of the other needs we have as children and then as humans is limit setting. You know, we, we see very young children testing limits, looking for, you know, can I get away with this? What's the boundary? And the more consistent those limits are, the, the safer the child will feel. So, you know, for, for families, carers to feel that it is actually okay to find, to figure out what's your personal limits and to hold those limits. That's okay. Um, even though that may be difficult for your family member and how do you balance those limits with that sense of, but here's what I can offer. Here's how I can be consistent. What do you need from me? What can I do better? You know, opening these kind of dialogues. And I would really encourage anyone who's struggling to, even if you can't find a dedicated, you know, group or DBT group for carers or something like that, consider seeing a psychologist for your own support. It can be very taxing um, to be a family member or carer. You can feel incredibly worried about your um, child, spouse. Um, you know, there can be a lot of high risk issues. You can be managing a lot of anxiety about whether they're going to be okay. It's definitely going to put you more on edge and find it harder to kind of make that space and be calm. So, you know, don't be afraid to talk to mental health professionals, psychologists, um, even your GP to discuss ways to keep yourself well, because the more that you feel regulated and calm, the more you can model that then for the people you're living with. Very well said. And I think it's also important for us to, to, to be working uh, on how we can, you know, better do this ourselves. I think as, you know, for, for myself as a parent, um, you know, that's a forever job. And, and, you know, as a spouse, it's a forever job. And as a son, it, you know, it's a forever job. You know, it, it's kind of hard to go out and do that. And, and, and you know, my, my biggest job is to do those roles better, you know, and, and, and you know, thankfully, I've got, uh, you know, uh, lots of love around me and lots of limit setting, which, you know, is exactly what, what we kind of want, you know, but it, it's lovely to have that from, you know, whether it be my spouse who says, you know, that's not okay, but I still love you, yeah. whether it be my parents, you know, who, who kind of say, yeah, good point, but you don't have, need to be so harsh, you know, we are still your parents, so, you know, um, you got to go out and suck that up. Yep, yeah, good point, mum and dad. <laughs> You know, or, or or anyone else that 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 you know, I might kind of become short with. You know, there, there's some limit setting, but there's plenty of love that 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 um, you know, balances that as well. Dr. Penny, I could, I could speak with you forever, for hours, you know, on this topic. I, I think it's uh, uh, so fascinating. There, there, there's so much to to learn. If there are clinicians in particular who would like to you know reach out to you I know you're in the Sydney area uh, mm. whether it be for supervision or for um, you know whether it be advice about how to get into the field you know of working with you know people who've lived through maybe trauma or you know insecure attachments how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, so um, I'm currently working full-time uh, with the University of Technology at Sydney here, so people would probably be able to find me on their staff page. But I do still do some um, external supervision, particularly with uh, registrars, early career psychologists, but psychologists or clinical psychologists in general who are particularly interested in personality disorders or complex trauma um, because 
you know, I really, I think it's sometimes hard for people who are interested in this area, I think they might be interested in it, to actually get the level of support that they need. It is a tough job. It's a very rewarding job, though. You know, we're working with people who've really suffered, sometimes even suffered at the hands of the mental health profession at times, um, you know, in our sometimes good intentions, but ignorance. Um, and so, you know, if there are therapists who really want to upskill or understand that better, you know, I'd be happy to talk about um, supervision or working with people. Um, but yes, anything I, I think anything we can do to get more people educated, interested in personality disorders, trauma, I think is going to have a really good societal impact. So yes, you probably, people could probably find me on the UTS um, staff page there. That's wonderful. And before I let you go, and I'm going to put you on the spot now, um, are there any good readings that you might be able to, let's say one one book in each category, whether it be a book for clinicians, where, mm-hmm. where, where they can start, and maybe a book for anyone that's living you know, with a, um, a member of the family, loved one, spouse, or whatever it might be, um, or whether it's themselves to, to, to learn more about them, themselves. Yes. Um, one of the books I, I really like is by Kira Van Gelder. It's a memoir uh, about her recovery from borderline personality disorder, and it's just not words you see put together that often. And so I would say to both clinicians, family members or um, individuals who might be suffering from these kind of um, difficulties, that's a really nice memoir to feel um, a sense that you're not alone and to see the struggle someone can have, that you're not alone in the struggle of actually finding the right type of treatment. So that's one I often recommend um, to people. This isn't personality disorder specific, but I also really like the book Breaking Negative Thinking Patterns. Um, it's a schema mode-based um, self-help book, but because it's based on modes, a lot of people with personality disorders may well resonate quite a lot with, oh, okay, so that's what my inner critic is doing and that how, how it resonates with my inner child and oh, okay I've got this kind of defensive coping mode and oh, that explains why I get into these patterns so again for clinicians and um, you know if you're really starting out in the field I think that's a great easy to read book as well I think for clinicians um, who are interested in kind of taking this work further I always recommend um, Marsha Linehan's book it's quite seminal I think in trying to understand the formulation behind um, you know really deep formulations of, of of um, this kind of emotion dysregulation. I also really like Schema Therapy in Practice by aunts and colleagues. Um, it goes through schema mode formulations of all of the personality disorders and talks about what, you know, um, mode treatment might look like for each type of um, mode. So I think they're often really helpful places to start. And, oh, and anything by Bessel van der Kolk, you know, the body keeps the score. I know there's a bit of controversy around Bessel at the moment, but I, I still think his work or Pat Ogden's work on um, the body, um, you know, is, is quite a helpful understanding of how these kind of developmental traumas can get stored in our brain, in our body and impact our um, adult life as well. Fantastic. I think some great literature there. I can't say I've read all of those, but um, certainly some, some some great titles. So, you know, I think it's a good, good place to, to start. Dr. Penny, thank you very much for your time and your expertise. Uh, I think uh, it's great to have people like yourself, you know, talking on this topic and, and enlightening, you know, all of us. So appreciate your time and I know what, what is an incredibly busy schedule um, and hopefully we can uh, reconvene at another time. 
Thank you. It's been great to talk about it. I hope people might be a bit more interested in this area too. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.